0: Okay, Ephesians chapter 3, that's where we are, so go ahead and flip there, we're going to get right to work. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we are, uh, where we're hanging. Yeah, perfect. Ephesians chapter 3, give you just a second to flip there. We're going to go ahead and start in verse 1, so here we go, let's go ahead and look at that, Ephesians 3 verse 1, first three words, for this reason... And, and this, we just can't get away from it. Here's the, here's the problem with the book of Ephesians. I can't get away from the gospel because it won't let me get away from the gospel. And so he, he's about to start this new section out, chapter 3. And here's the first thing he wants to reiterate. That what I'm about to tell you is for the reason of what I've just told you. So, so he's looking backwards and he's saying, it's because of that that I'm telling you this. And so here's the, that part of this. So if you look back into Ephesians chapter 2 specifically, um, look back there, Ephesians chapter 2, look at the very first line in Ephesians chapter 2. We get a real good sense right off the get-go of what he's telling us. He's going to tell us the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. And he starts it out by telling us that we are hopelessly sinful people. That's how he begins his conversation about the gospel. So he unfolds it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He's going to say that we are dead in our sin, that's what he says in verse one, that we are dead in our sin, that we're enslaved to sin, that it's not just that we're spiritually dead, unresponsive to God. It is that we are actively in rebellion. So we are following actively the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Okay, so we're actively following those things. Okay, then he's going to say we're condemned in our sin in verse three. He's going to say that, listen, you're, you're not only enslaved and you're not only dead in your sin, but you have been given the death sentence because of it. Flattering stuff right there, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so you've been given the destinies that you are an object of wrath. Now, I know when I say you're an object of my wrath, nobody runs, right? But but when God says you're an object of my wrath, that's fear. Okay, so, so he begins the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is where you see this first bookend of the gospel. That we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. You know that? That we are more sinful. However sinful you think you are. You're more sinful than that, I'll promise you, right? And, and so I like, I like to say it this way periodically that um, if I knew how sinful you were, I wouldn't preach to you. And if you knew how sinful I was, you wouldn't let me preach to you, right? That's how sinful we are. So so wherever you see your kind of sinfulness, that wherever that thing is for you, just know that you have not scratched the surface of our sinfulness yet. That's bookend number one, that we are more sinful than we dare dream. It's not that God just going to kind of put back a fender on the car of our life. It is that the car is total. Okay, maybe you could think of it this way. When you look at the cross, think of the cross for just a second. It is a brutal scene, isn't it? The cross is a gross scene. That is your sin to God. If you think of the body that is beaten beyond recognition, that is how sinful we are. That's the picture of our sin. But the cross isn't just the picture of our sin. Here's the beauty of it. It's also the picture of our salvation. Look in verse 4 in chapter 2. He says this, you were this, this is what you were. You're sinful, hopelessly sinful people. And here's the second bookend though. But God, you see that in verse 4? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sin, he made us alive is what verse 5 says. So so here's the second bookend. Well, okay, so, so here we're more sinful than we ever imagined. Second bookend is that we are more loved than we dare dream. Those are the bookends of the gospel. One keeps us from pride, the other from despair. That there is hope in our sin. Amen? That, that's the beauty of the gospel. That even though we are hopelessly sinful, Christ loves us in the middle of the stench of our sin. That's the beauty of it. Okay, so so he unfolds the gospel. You get to verse 8 in chapter 2. He's going to make sure we get a clear picture of it is the grace of God that saves you. The thing that separates, if if you're saved in this room, here is the only thing that separates you from a person that is not. It is not your intellect, your savvy. It's not your morality. The only thing that separates you from an unsaved person is grace. That's it. That's what he's telling you in verse 8. That it doesn't have anything to do with your works. It is by the grace of God that you are saved. There is nothing in me that is worth saving, nothing. It is the grace of God that has done that. Okay, so he unfolds the gospel. And this is where the gospel starts. And we kind of run through these definitions on the back of your bulletin. That, that it starts with the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people. And that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection. So that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. The gospel. Okay, now now here's what's about to happen in chapter 3. And by the way, in the end of chapter, okay, so he starts chapter two, here's the gospel, receive that. Then the second half of chapter two, he tells you to remember it. Last week, we talked about that. We have to remember what we once were, what Christ has done, and now what we have now become because of Christ. So he says, remember it in in the second part of of chapter two. Now here, here's what's about to happen in chapter three. If you look at this, he's going to say, for this reason, and then look at the next couple of words here. I, Paul. So because of the gospel, here is who I now am. Here's what's about to happen over the next 13 verses. Paul is about to give us a picture of what the gospel has done to him. That's the picture. So so the gospel, what the gospel has done to this man. It made Paul a much different man. Wouldn't we all agree with that? Like if we read the pre-conversion picture of Paul, that is a much different man than the man we see writing the book of Ephesians. And he's about to lay out, this is what the gospel has done to me. I mean, this is the effect that it's had on me. Okay, so maybe you could think about it in in this way this morning. When the gospel is received and is being continually remembered, then the gospel is realized in our life. Okay, I want you to, to grab this one more time. When the gospel has been received and it's being remembered, then the gospel will be realized. It will show itself in our life. It has an effect on us. When it's been received and is being remembered, it doesn't lie dormant. It does things to us, like inexplicable things to us. So, so when we have received the gospel and we're remembering the gospel, chapter two, then chapter three, the first 13 verses happens. It is realized in our life. Do you remember some of those moments that change you forever? Remember some of those? Like maybe it's that day that you stood at the altar and got married. That's a, that's a changer. Uh, maybe it's that, that delivery room when they hand the baby to you. That's a life changer. For some of you, it's when the, like that first time you put the honey on the tacos. Do you remember that day? I'm telling you, you just got to try it. It'll change your life forever. Um, how about this one, though? Maybe when you experienced the great loss... When Laura was 19 years old, she gets a phone call that her dad was refereeing a football game, is chasing down a play, has a heart attack on the football field, and dies. That's a game changer, isn't it? And here's what Paul's saying. That the life-altering moment, I have experienced loss, I've experienced all these other things. The life-changing moment is when the gospel was received and remembered. And when those things happen, it makes the, go- it forces the gospel out in our life. The gospel is realized in a thousand different ways. Okay, so, so here's the goal of this morning. I want to try to walk through this passage and, and show you four kind of brief pictures of what the gospel has done to Paul, how it altered him, how it changed him. The gospel realized in his life by him receiving and remembering the gospel, what it did to him. Okay, so let's start reading in verse one here. Verse 1 says this, for this reason, the gospel, I, Paul, this is going to be the personal nature of this. This is what on a personal level and a corporate level, this is what the gospel begins to do to us. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, so, so here would be the first one. It made Paul, the gospel made Paul into a good prisoner. It fashioned Paul into a prisoner. Now, I think this is interesting when you, when you start looking at the book of Ephesians and Paul, maybe just a little wider angle. Okay, now in the book of Ephesians, here's what you see. In three one he calls himself a prisoner. In four one he calls himself a prisoner. And in 6.20, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. So Paul sees himself as a man in chains for the gospel. Now, now this is what I think is interesting about that. Is the, the Romans are who had him in prison. The, I mean, they, they are the ones that said you're no longer free, you're going here. The the Romans are the one who had the lock, all they had to do is insert it, or the key, insert it in the lock, and he's a free man. I mean, the Romans are the one, that just one Roman official, all they had to do is come along and say, okay, he's free. And he's out. But that is not how Paul viewed his prison sentence. Okay, look look at what he says here. I'm a prisoner of who? Not of Rome, but of Christ. That's... That's why I'm in prison. I mean, that that is, it is from the hand of God that I'm here. So I am in prison, not because somebody's mad at me. Not because of this king over here who wants me in prison. I am in prison because of the king. That's why I'm in prison. I'm a prisoner of Christ. So, So he sees his prison sentence totally different. I mean, he has got a much different, a radically different view of why he is there. He is there at the beckoning of God, not at the beckoning of a Roman official. Okay, then he goes on to say this. He goes on to say it's on behalf of the Gentiles. So, okay, I, I'm in prison like, of Christ for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, this is what I think is interesting. When you start looking at the, the life of Paul, wider angle, when he gets saved, He's on a road to Damascus. He is going to persecute Christians when he gets saved. Okay, God slams into him on the road to Damascus. And then he sends Ananias to explain to Paul what the future holds. Now, now you don't have to flip there. Just listen to this as I read this out of um, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is like the second step for Paul. Okay, so God, I'm yours. Now what? This is the now what for Paul. God sends Ananias to convey this message to him. The Lord said to him, Ananias... Go, for this man Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16. For I will show him, I will, God will, show him how much he must suffer. Not because the Gentiles are going to persecute you. Not because the Romans are going to lock you in prison. But I'm going to show you how much you're going to have to suffer for the sake of my name. For the sake of my name, for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Okay, now I, I want to have just a real straightforward conversation just for a couple of minutes here this morning, because I hope that, that it will be God's mercy to prepare us for what lies ahead in our life. When you look across this room, if you're a part of the Stonegate family, here's what this means for us, is that we will marry in this room, and we will bury the people in this room. You know that? We're not escaping that. From the hand of God, there will be things dealt all of us. And listen, I, I, we would all agree that if we were just had all the options on the table, right? We would all pick. Um, give me the long life, the, the nice wife, the, uh, g- give me all that one. But here's the problem. For Paul, that was not in his cards. From God, I will show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Okay, now, now look at me right here, and that is not going to be in many of our cards. Paul, now if you look at Paul's life, he had a lot more than just prison, right? I mean, he had shipwrecks, he was left for dead after being stoned, he was whipped, he was tortured. The whole day. he finds himself in prison as he writes this letter. And your prison and my prison may not be a physical throw him in jail. But it may be a really difficult marriage. It may be cancer. It may be great loss from people you dearly love. It may be the loss of your job. It, I mean, we could go down the list of what it could be. And listen, that's going to be in store for all of us in this room. And we all need to hear this before it happens. That in the gospel, now look at me here, the gospel transforms our trials. That's what the gospel does to us. Now listen to how this works. Because of the gospel, we can all have confidence, just like Paul did, just like Job did. We can all have confidence that everything that is dealt us in life is grace from a good dad. Now I don't want you to misunderstand me here. Because grace, look at me here, grace can be a paddle and it can be paradise. It can be both of those. Now, I've got a five-month-old kid and literally this is on my to-do list. I want to hand make a paddle and I'm going to carve in that paddle grace. That's going to be the name of that paddle. Because sometimes grace is a paddle. Sometimes it is. Grace can be a candlelight dinner with your wife and it can be cancer. And the thing that transforms cancer into grace is the gospel. Because we have got a good dad who gives us nothing but grace. So even when grace takes the form of cancer or paddle, it is God prying our grip off of this world that is not our home, that will leave us unsatisfied and placing our grip on him. That's what it does. Okay, now picture this scene. Okay, I've got a two-year-old Hannah. She has got a sweet tooth like no other. She loves chalk. That's short for chocolate, right? This is two-year-old vocabulary. She loves chalk. So every time we sit down, she's asking for chalk. Now picture this through the eyes of a two-year-old. When mom and dad do not give her chalk, we leave the chocolate in the pantry, and we get the vegetables out, and we throw the vegetables on her plate. Picture this to the minds of a two-year-old. I want that. I know that is best for me. But instead, they are giving me worse. I mean, they're giving me something I don't want. They're giving me vegetables for crying out loud, right? So is our mind. So is our mind. We have got a good daddy who gives us nothing but grace in our life. To pry our hands from this world and to place them firmly on him. Nothing but grace, because of the gospel. Outside of the gospel, that does not apply. Because of the gospel, he turns every trial into something Romans eight twenty eight that is working for our good. You can be confident of that if you're in the gospel. It transforms our trials. It sanctifies our sufferings. Um, I don't know how many of you guys know the name Matt Chandler. He's in our network of church planters. Acts twenty nine. And uh, Matt is on a national stage. I mean, God has blown that place up in in a really wild way. Thanksgiving Day, he has a seizure. Falls over in his house, busts his head open. Take him to the hospital. They do a a, a scan of his brain, all that, try to check out what what is making that seizure happen. Um, They find out he has got a brain tumor. They immediately do surgery. It's cancerous. They cannot get it all. They put him in in chemotherapy, radiation. I mean, they've got the full throttle treatment going. Okay, now fast forward uh, about a month from that, in early January, he starts doing these video blogs just to update his church people with what's going on. Every time he mentions it, you know how he mentions it? In November, the grace of God began. In November, The mercy of God was realized. Just like James, kind of pure joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. Just like Paul, all these things work together for the good of those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. Paul is sitting in prison as he writes Philippians. Here's what he says So then, brothers, I want you to know that what has happened to me, suffering, sickness, Stonings, beatings, prison. What has happened to me? Served the gospel, has advanced the gospel. His his prison is for Christ. On behalf of the Gentiles. Now now you and I, we may never get to see how it plays out like Paul did. Paul got to see, I'm in prison, and it is having an effect to make sure that the imperial guard, the people he really wanted to reach, the higher-ups in Rome, were getting the gospel. Now we may never get to see that in our sickness, but we can sure believe it because of the Bible. That nothing happens outside of the grace of God. And listen, when you go through difficult days, it is a beautiful opportunity to display the worth of christ your suffering will more than likely put you on a bigger stage than any of your good days will for you to display the glory of christ the worth of christ to the world so paul saw himself as a prisoner for christ on behalf of the gentiles and listen he was not a pity party type of a prisoner he was a joyful prisoner right Okay, so the gospel had been received, it was being remembered, and it was being realized in his life. He was a good gospel-fashioned prisoner. It had sanctified his sufferings. Okay, that's what the gospel does for us. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You might circle that word stewardship. Maybe prisoner and stewardship here. The, the gospel made Paul, fashioned Paul into a steward. Now, now here's what a steward is. A steward is a person that has received something, some from what... Receive something from someone else to invest, to use, to grow as the master would see fit. That's what what a steward is. I've received something and now I'm using what I've received for the purpose of the person that gave it to me. That's what a steward does. We get something from someone else. It's not ours to own. We've received it. It's a gift, and now we use the gift as the obediently, joyfully, as the master would say, use it. So now, this is taught all throughout the Bibles, that, that you have got the gift of maybe you could talk about your time, your talent, your resources. Okay, now we could go to different places in the Bible, and we could talk about how that we're supposed to use our talents, our giftings, First Corinthians 12, for the sake of the body. I, you, you're not just given your giftings and your talents. You're given those to build the body of Christ. That's why you've been given those things. Okay, now we could talk about resources and your money and your pocketbook. And we could go to 1 Corinthians 8 and we could talk about how God has given you gifts not to hoard, but to herald the gospel. That's why you've got them. Okay, so we could talk about all that. Now, here's what Paul does in this passage, though. He backs up, and he's going to look kind of with a broad angle here, and he's going to say, let's get this right, and if this is right, all these other things will fall into place. If we can get this piece of what you're a steward of right, then your checkbook, your, your talent, your time, your resources, all those things will fall in after that. Okay, so, so here's what he says. You are a steward of the gospel, You're a steward of the grace of God. Now, I love how he describes the gospel in this passage. He describes the gospel in maybe two different ways you can look at it here. The the first thing he would say is the gospel is a truth. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, here's what he says. This is a mystery. This gospel is a mystery. Now, when we think of the word mystery, we think of something that we just cannot know. A mystery is something that, that we just cannot get kind of to the bottom of. That That's the mystery. Now, in the Bible, a mystery is something that we could not know, but that God has revealed. That That's the point of verse 3, 4, and 5. That God has made it known to Paul. He has given him this mystery. He has made it apparent what this mystery is. And then Paul describes it. Here's the mystery. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you go back up to 2.12, here's what Paul said there. Here's what we once were. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the people of God. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope. We had no God. That's what we were pre-Christ. But now in the gospel, this is what we are. We are fellow heirs. I mean, we are heirs with God. That's what we are now because of the gospel. We're partakers in this promise because of the gospel. Okay, so so you see the the difference here. We were this, now we're that. This is the gospel. So the gospel is a truth. It's a truth to be heralded. It's a truth that we have to tell people. They do not know it unless we tell it. Okay, so it's a truth. But now here's the problem, I think, and and specifically in the Bible Belt, where we do ministry, where we do life, is we get the truth part, and that is what it is to us, and it's nothing more. But the gospel is not just a truth the gospel is also a treasure. Look at verse 8. Look at how he describes the gospel. The unsearchable riches of Christ. If you want to underline, highlight, star, I would star that one. That's what the gospel is. Now, here's the question. Do you see the gospel that way as the treasure I mean, you see it that way. I mean, picture this. This is how I think God would want us to picture the gospel. That it would be like God giving you a treasure chest. I mean, you can pick this treasure chest up. It's heavy because it's full. And you take this treasure chest into your room and you want to start counting your money. So you flip open the top, you sit it down, and you start you start bringing this stuff out. And you start scooping the treasure out. You've got gold coins, more gold coins than you have ever seen. So you start scooping this stuff, you're counting it, you're, you're organizing it. And here's what you realize, is you're scooping these things out. It keeps replenishing. So you scoop, and there's still stuff there. I mean, you reach your hand all the way to the bottom. It should be right there, but your hand like goes through the bottom. That is what the gospel is. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, do you see it that way? Because if we don't see it that way, we'll never be a good steward of it. It's a truth and a treasure. Okay, so here's what this means for us as we're a steward of this great gospel, the truth and the treasure. You and I will either be a cul-de-sac of God's grace. You know what a cul-de-sac is? You pull into the cul-de-sac, you've got to stop and turn around. There's no through street. It's dead end posted right there. The shut off vow is off. We're either a cul-de-sac of God's grace or we're conduit. Conduit is this piping that things flow through to get to their final destination. Now, what are you? Conduit, cul-de-sac. God's saying, listen for me, I am conduit. This grace that has been given, I'm not going to leave it here. The the shut-off valve is open. It is going to flow through me to the desired destination. So let me ask you this question. Has the gospel been received and been remembered to the point where it is making you a great steward of all that God has given you? The gospel, the grace, is that a steward? Is it passing through your life to other people? Time, talent, treasures, passing through your life to other people. Paul's saying this is what the gospel does. The gospel, when it's realized, makes us a steward. This is the effect it has on us. Okay, let's keep reading here. Verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power. Now now here it comes in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, So so he sees this in the context of, I don't deserve this. This is not a, I have to do it. This is, I get to do it. So to me, the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here's the grace that was given to him to do this. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The gospel was received remembered and here's what it did for paul it fashioned him into a proclaimer the gospel lived on his lips that's where it lived okay so now let me back up and say this as we start this conversation i feel like i am not this is not tour guide right here this is fellow traveler i I just want to preface it with that i am like i've been humbled by this one This is one of those that is working on me right now. Okay, so with that said, here's the clear point of what Paul is saying. The gospel, I've got it. It was given to me. And because it was given to me, here's what it made me do. It made me proclaim it. So here's the clear point of the passage. That if you've got the gospel, it will make you into a proclaimer of that gospel. That's the clear point of the passage. Okay, now now here's the question. Are we that? Now, here could be the response to this. Is, well, man, you just made me feel a little bit guilty, so I'm not that. So at 2 o'clock today, I'm in. I'm doing it. I'm just going to go find an unsuspecting person, and I'm on it. I've got this. Okay, here's the problem with that. Is if guilt is your motivator, you'll stop as soon as the guilt erodes. And we'll give it a day. We'll give it a day. So so guilt is not our motivator. Grace is. And until grace becomes our motivator, we will never consistently and effectively be gospel proclaimers. So I want to give you three or four things here that are dependent. Like if we're going to consistently and effectively proclaim the gospel throughout our life, these things have got to undergird it. They've got to be on a foundational level underneath the gospel being proclaimed. Okay, so, so here would be the first one. Number one is we have to have a deep love for Jesus. Do you have a deep love for Jesus? Do you have a deep love for Jesus? This is what I encourage you to do sometime. Read the first two chapters of Ephesians and ask yourself this question. What does this show me about Paul's heart for God? And you know what you'll see in the first two chapters? It pops off the page that Paul has a white-hot zeal for Jesus which made him a great gospel proclaimer. Here's the other piece of that. Until we have a white-hot zeal for Jesus, we'll never consistently and effectively proclaim the gospel. The gospel will not live on our lips until Jesus looms large in our heart. Okay, now, now, I think this is really interesting. And I, I am so thankful for, for my network of church planting friends right now. Because they have pushed on me, and they, I've really gleaned some great insight into them. And so I, I want to give you this piece of this insight. I had one of my pastor friends tweet this. Any, any Twitter guys? In? Okay, so, so this is a good guy. J.R. Vassar is a good guy to get his tweets. And here's what he tweeted. It just feels a little awkward saying that, you know? Um, he, here's what he tweeted. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Why is that? I mean, maybe we could personalize this. Why are you hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? Steve Thames, he's kind of the coordinator for Acts 29 in London, kind of that part of Europe. He instantly throws this retweet, that's new vocabulary for me, right? Retweet back to answer the question. Here's what he said. Because we are not truly, madly, and deeply, remember this guy's from London, besotted with Jesus. Step one to understand that. You got to go look up besotted, right? I have no idea what besotted means. Here's what it means to be intoxicated with captivated by to be obsessed with something that's what it means and until we are that we will never be a gospel proclaimer until we are besotted with jesus until we are madly deeply intoxicated with until our thoughts are monopolized by christ our heart is monopolized by jesus we will never have the gospel on our lips so how about we personalize this? Because here's what's really easy for all of us to do. We can cloak a vice in a virtue in a second. I mean, we can cloak our silence in kind of the vice of, I don't want to offend, in a second we can do that. And so maybe we ought to take this as a personal kind of application here and ask this question. Why is it that you, me, we are hesitant, reluctant to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel? Why is that? And could it be that the reason for that is we are not madly, truly besotted with Jesus? I mean, could that be it? And listen, I I have been personally humbled by this this week. And here's what it's caused me to do. And I would invite the same response is to repent and then to plead with God that he would besot me with him. I mean, maybe that's what we need to do this morning. It's just to fall on our face and to say, God, will you please make yourself loom large in my heart? Monopolize every thought. You know why it's so easy for us to talk about our sports team, our kids? I mean, a thousand different things is because we are besotted with them. And, And here's the problem when we share the gospel without being besotted with Jesus. Is we really quickly become car salesmen, peddling a product for a wage? And can I just say we're not peddling a product for a wage. We have been entrusted with the beautiful and searchable riches of Christ to give. We're not peddling a product. Now I want you to picture this: if we were to meet for the first time this weekend, let's say we're at Campanos. We're eating Mexican food. You walk in. I walk in. We don't know each other. Here's the first thing I would do. I would say, my name's Rodney. This is my wife, Laura. That's the first thing i do. You know why that would be the first part of my conversation? Because there is genuine affection for her. Because I love my wife. I am proud of my wife. She is far better than I deserve. There is genuine affection. You know what I've never had come back? I've never had, well, that seemed a little forced. And you kind of manipulated that to kind of throw her in there. That's never, never happened. Why? Because it's genuine affection. And if we want to not be car salesmen, peddling the product of the gospel, and we want to become people giving the unsearchable riches of Christ, we have got to be besotted with Jesus, where it is the natural overflow of our heart. A deep love for Jesus. That's the first thing that's got to happen. Okay, here's the second one. Is that we have to have a deep love for people. If we want the gospel to flow from our lips, we have got to love people. You Okay, read the first two chapters of Ephesians, ask yourself another question. How does Paul feel about people? It explodes off the page that he loves people. Look at verse 13 in this passage. He is suffering for their glory. He loves these people. And you know what, I think that we say we love people a lot more than we do, you know? And so maybe a good thing for us to pray would be for God to break our heart for our neighborhood, to break our heart for our family, to break our heart for our friends, our coworkers, to break our hearts warm. that we would have a genuine, deep love of people. Because here's what I think, this is how this works for us. When when we start thinking gospel conversation, I think one of the first things that goes in my mind is, man, what are they going to say in return? Am I going to offend? Are they going to be mad at me? Am I going to lose a friendship here? What's going to happen? And see, here's what happens when that becomes our first thought. We have cloaked the vice of silence in the virtue of tolerant love. We've cloaked a vice in a virtue. That's what we've just done there. It is not tolerant love to remain silent. It's not. It is a vice to remain silent. That's what it is. So we need a deep love for people. It is loving to speak the gospel. Look at verse 9. Paul saw this preaching as something that had to happen because it was how the light was shown on people to make this mystery known. Without light, people remain and perish in darkness. So we have to have a deep love for people. That's why Paul was such a great proclaimer. Okay, now this third one, this one is going to be important for us, and here's why. Because I think if you've been in church, you're accustomed to hearing the first two. But this one, you're probably not accustomed to hearing. The third one. If we want to be a good proclaimer of the gospel, a deep love for people, a deep love for God, and here's the third one. We have to have a deep knowledge. We have to deeply know the gospel. We have to know the gospel. Okay, now here's what he called it. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what he called it. Okay, now that, that same word unsearchable is unfathomable. I mean, there's like a whole untraceable. There's a whole list of words that could be translated there. Infinite. That's okay. That, that's all that word. So it's the unsearchable riches. So now here's the question for us in this room. And this is where I think it gets really applicable for us. How much of those unsearchable riches do you know? How much of those riches do you know? How much of them do I know? How much of the untraceable, infinite riches of the gospel are we swimming in? I'll ask that same question this way. How is the gospel currently changing you? How's the gospel changing you? See, until until we can have a good answer to that question we're going to have a hard time getting into a lot of gospel conversations. Okay, now this is how this works. Let me try to make sense of this for you real quick. Most of us have a very narrow view of the gospel. Here's what the gospel means to us. If we're going to talk about the gospel, here's how we talk about it. Are you saved from hell? The gospel saves from hell, so are you saved from hell? That's how most of us think. That's the framework we have the gospel in. That is not the framework of the gospel biblically. That is the centerpiece of it, but there's a much wider framework. Here would be the gospel broad lens. That's narrow, this is broad. The gospel renews every area of your life. Every area. That's what the gospel does. So so because of sin, we have wine that is turned into alcohol, alcoholism, right? We have food that's turned into gluttony. We have sex that's turned into incest and rape and adultery. Okay, so we have all this fracture. And the gospel comes along and it fixes our heart. That's what the gospel does. It renews all of these areas that sin has broken. That's what the gospel does for us. Okay, that's the wide angle length. that it renews every area of your life. Now let me show you how this applies for me. Uh, three or four years ago, I'm sitting in student ministry world. And I had I was a ministry idolater. That's what I was. I was depending on ministry to fix me. And, and so here's how this plays out. Um, I, I had this idol of the approval of men of success deep down in my heart. Now, now here's the good thing. When, when ministry was kind of going well, th- then there's no problem. That, that idol kind of lied undisturbed. It was fine. No, no biggie. But as soon as I thought things should be here and they were there, As soon as the trajectory of our ministry wasn't wasn't exactly like I liked it, that idol started screaming. And what I was looking to to fix me failed me. What I was looking to to save me didn't. It was unsatisfying. And I went through a nine-month period that I, I could literally not get out from under the cloud. Couldn't do it. I would leave work hating every second of it. I would get home. Like, I man, the grace of God sustained Laura in the middle of that. I was not a good husband. And here's why. I was depending on that to fix me. It was my functional Savior. I was saved. Like, I got the gospel in saved terms. But I did not get it in the functional every day that it's continually renewing terms. So I was looking for this is my Savior. Now, this is what the Holy Spirit started to do to me. The Holy Spirit started to preach the gospel to me. That, Rodney, you are more sinful than you dare dream. So why in the world do you think I'm going to be more pleased with you, more you're going to be more accepted by me if you have a bigger ministry? I mean, why is that? How do you think the ministry is going to fix you? So he starts to tenderly preach to me that you're not going to be fixed there. And then he starts to to tenderly preach the other side. That you are more loved than you dare dream. That your morality, the size of your ministry, does not make me smile more brightly at you. You're accepted because of the cross. You're accepted in the gospel. Okay, now look at me right here. That day for me was the most freeing day I've had in ministry. Okay, now here's how this works for you and I. You go to work with people, and we walked in this, in this door, by the way, today with a lot of functional saviors looking for things to fix us. We go to work, and people believe that these things are going to fix them. That if I can get this relationship, then I'm fixed. If I can get this amount of money, then I'm fixed. If I can get kind of success up to here, then I'll be fixed. If I can get this sort of a house, this sort of a thing, this sort of a possession, if I can just get the next thing, if I can get the iPad, right? I'm good. So, So we walk in with all these functional saviors, and here's the truth. The gospel says Jesus alone will fix you. Jesus alone. Okay, now I want you just to see the implication, and we'll move on. Here's the implication of this. If you've got a narrow view of the gospel, you limit your door of conversation to one door. Here's the door of opportunity. Are you going to hell or are you going to heaven? That's your door. If you see the gospel through a broad lens the gospel renews every area of your life. When a coworker says, "I hate my marriage." That's a gospel issue. When a friend says, "I am unsatisfied in work." It's a gospel issue. When somebody says, "I hate life." Gospel issue. When somebody says, "I'm depressed." Gospel issue. When somebody says, "I have a lot of anger." Gospel issue. When somebody says, "I'm bitter." gospel issue so now we've got a thousand doors to talk about the gospel in see the implication there now we've got a thousand different ways that we can speak tenderly and appropriately the gospel to people that's how it works itself out but look, okay now look at me here unless you are walking in the gospel swimming deeply in the gospel unless you know how the gospel relates to your marriage to your unforgiveness, to your dissatisfaction in work and in life and in everything else, until we know how it relates to all those areas, we'll never be able to, to tenderly and appropriately apply it. So we have got to be people who walk in the gospel. How is the gospel changing you? That question determines it. How is the gospel currently changing you? So, so here's what Paul's saying. When we know the gospel, unsearchable riches of Christ, we can tenderly and appropriately apply it. Okay, so we've got to know people. We've got to love God. We've got to be able to know the gospel. And fourth one here, and then we'll move on to the last point: Is we have to live a life that demands gospel explanation. Paul did, by the way. He lived a life that demands explanation. He is sitting in prison. Now, now picture yourself as the prison guard. This guy is sitting here in prison. He's happy about it. I mean, he's not throwing his pity party. This guy's singing over here in prison. He's writing little letters in prison. I mean, he's got the whole thing going. His life demanded explanation. So let me ask you, does your life demand explanation for why you live that way? You know what I love about seeing the guys that come in and set up and tear down? That demands explanation. Normal people don't get up at 6.30 on Sunday to come set up a church. They don't do that. I mean, their faithfulness demands explanation. When I think of Billy Chadwell here, I think he's got some things about him that demand explanation. I think he's got the fruit of the Spirit, peace, and and patience, working out in him that's pretty uncanny. I think it demands explanation. Mike Harmon, I don't know where he is, um, I think he's got some things about him that demand explanation. He's about to lose his job, he knows it. And he's got this uncanny peace. Now look at Peace and patience are fruit of the Spirit. That is not a personality type, all right? And so here's the thing. When when we, first of all, are we living in such a way that demands explanation? And then when questions are asked, here's what we've got to be doing. We've got to give gospel explanation for it. It is not your personality type. Personality type is, I want it right now and I'll kill you to get it. That's our personality, that's DNA right there at work. But here is the gospel at work in us, making us patient people, making us peaceful people, making us people who love, have joy, have faithfulness, have self-control. Those are all gospel-given things. So we've got to declare that that's what they are. We've got to live a life that demands explanation and then give gospel-centered explanation to it. Okay, last point, and then we're, we're out. Last thing the gospel made Paul. It fashioned him into a churchman. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, Paul loved the church, loved it. The gospel made him love it. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church displays the glory of God. And because of that, Paul loved the church. It displays the glory of God. That word manifold, that same word, a little bit simpler Greek word, would use used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. So so the, this many colored, many tints and hues, Paul is saying that the church displays those, all those colors, all those tints and hues. It displays the glory of God in all those different ways. The church does that. So so here's, I think, an interesting thing. If somebody were to ask you today, um, how was church? This could be your response. Response could go like this. Um, you know, church was not too bad. Singing was pretty good. Preaching was terrible. Donuts were great. Coffee was good. People were nice. Not a bad day. You know, not too bad. Or you could say this out of verse 10. That today, our church talked about the gospel. We sang the gospel. And because we sang and talked the gospel, here's what I know. That we put on display for the world the glory of Christ. And not only to the world, but we displayed to the angels in heaven the glory of Christ. Look at that last phrase in verse 10. That's what we do. That's what the church is doing. It is displaying the glory of Christ to not only the earth, but to the heavenly realms, to the angels. Peter says that the angels, they desperately want to peer in to the great gospel. That's what we do here this morning. It displays the glory of Christ. Last thing, reason Paul loved it. The church is central to the purpose of God. Because the church is about the glory of God, then the church is central to the the purpose of God. And and we'll close with maybe this imagery. Go back to uh, to history class for me. Remember those days? For some of us, it's been a while, right? So go back to history class and picture your teacher standing up, opening up her history book, his history book, and, and walking through history with you. And how does that conversation go? It starts with this kingdom and this king, and then it goes to this kingdom and that king. So we've got the Greeks. Here are their rulers. They kind of waned in power. Now here are the Romans. They kind of waned in power. Now here are these people. All the way through, they're they're tracing kings and kingdoms. But now I want you to picture God opening up his history book. It's a much different lesson. His His history book revolves around the glory of God and how the glory of God extends itself in the grace of God which made out of all the peoples of the earth a people for God called the church and his history book unfolds not kings and kingdoms but it traces the movement of the church and God stands and he proclaims in broad strokes here's the movement here's what my grace did In the church and then he comes back after these broad strokes and applies these small detailed strokes to the picture and those small detailed strokes are individual churches individual people attempting great things for the glory of god bleeding for the glory of god suffering well for the glory of god giving for the glory of god serving for the glory of god God. And what is little known in the world is famous to him. And may we be the sort of place that although we have no worldly fame, have all the fame we can endure in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. God, we... uh, we stand in just amazement at the unsearchable riches of the gospel. God, I pray for my friends in this room, pray over myself, that, that we would walk deeper into those unsearchable riches, that we would take more of the treasure out, that we would get to know more of the gold coins of the gospel. And God, I thank you for how the gospel transforms everything in our life. It renews all things. And God, I thank you for the picture of Paul, how it made him a great sufferer, how it made him a great steward of your grace, how it made him a great proclaimer of the gospel, how it made him a great churchman. Where are the great churchmen in the 21st century? willing to give their lives to build the church. 40, 50, 60-year-old men willing to give their life to build it. God, I pray that your gospel would make us that. God, I pray that because we are besotted with Jesus, with you, that the gospel would live on our lips. And so we'll end this morning with Kevin um, singing a song for us and and maybe you need to use this front this morning as just a time of repentance you can do it in your seat just as easily if you want to make a move though if you want to bring your family up and pray um, you're more than welcome to do that if you'd like to be prayed over i'll be up here um, but I, I want to encourage you are you besotted with jesus are you swimming in the riches of the gospel if not may this be a morning that we repent May this be a morning that we plead for more grace to see more clearly. God, just echo with what Paul prays for the people in Ephesus in chapter 1, that God would enlighten our hearts to see the hope, the riches, the power that's in the gospel. So God, I pray for that, for us, for our Stonegate family. God, help us see clearly. God, remove the fog. Help us see the riches of your grace. God, we love you. God, I pray for um, just a movement of you in our hearts. God, help the gospel to be realized in our lives. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us?